2: Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things, and sometimes that means murder. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Stephanie Lidecker and forensic expert Joseph Scott Morgan, who hosts his own podcast, Body Bags. He's handled thousands of death investigations and Joseph also recently worked with us on our documentary, Murdered Missing in Montana, now streaming on Peacock. Episode 13, the case of the serial bride, the fixer, and the Valentine's Day death. Stacey Morgan loved love. Perhaps it was her parents divorcing at a young age, but she always dreamt of finding her own forever and being someone's wife. Unsurprisingly, she married her high school sweetheart just prior to graduating. However, just two years later, the pair divorced. When she was 20, Stacy got married again and had a son. However, she ended up celebrating her one year anniversary with another divorce. For four years, Stacy focused on making a better life for her and her son. She earned a degree in psychology and nursing and began working her way up at hospitals in Georgia. At 26, she had a fiery romance with a new man and got married yet again. But just six weeks later, the couple split. In her early 30s, Stacy got married for the fourth time. She had two more sons, but it wasn't enough to keep the couple together and they split up in 2005. Stacy was 34. In 2006, Stacy met a graphic designer at the hospital she worked at named Richard Schack. The pair quickly hit it off and eloped in 2007. Richard was Stacy's fifth husband. Some of those closest to Stacy rolled their eyes. Another husband? But something about Richard was different. The 43-year-old marched to the beat of his own drum. He was eccentric, but a good man, at work, people knew him as a motivator who always wanted to help others solve problems. An enthusiastic athlete, Richard loved playing catch and roller skating. He was funny and outgoing, Stacy was friendly and kind, and they seemed like a perfect match. Stacy's family noted that Richard was the best in her evolving staple of men. Plus he didn't care that she'd had a complicated past. Richard was madly in love with Stacy. Here's Joseph.
4: My goodness, five husbands? You know, you, you think about this, uh, Stephanie, relative to, you know, the short amount of time you have on this earth. How exactly does one go about having five husbands over this short period of time? I'd just be very curious as to what this says about an individual and the way they view relationships.
5: I guess that would say about Stacy specifically is, you know, she really believed in love and was committed to finding it at the bare minimum
4: maybe so but you begin to think about this this idea is it is it actually love or is it the idea of love or maybe the idea of just being married of being attached to someone you know and you you look at richard richard's number five steph so out of the four previous husbands what is it that set him apart that attracted her that this was going to be her forever love what what is it that made richard so special
5: Friends and family said he was very kind and very fun. He loved riding his motorcycle and he took her hot air ballooning and he seemed to really bring out Stacy's adventurous side. He was also an incredible stepfather. So here she is a single mother and now she finally meets a man who really takes fatherhood seriously. In fact, he quit his job to make more time to take care of the boys. He became their coach and ended up leading the Boy Scout troop. So he was a real catch. In fact, he even went on to adopt the boys. So for her, this might have been her finally happily ever after. At that time, Stacy was also finding her own way and doing really well at work.
4: Yeah. And, you know, you, she's no slouch. Still. This lady, she was she was a medical administrator. You know, she's got this background where she's worked hard. You know, keep in mind how she started out. You know, she got married right out of high school. Here she is. And she's gotten a couple of degrees and now she's worked herself into a position of trust where she's managing uh, a medical practice and she's, you know, essentially pulling in six figures a year and she's working her tail off. You know, what makes this all the more interesting is that not only is she managing, you know, a household by herself, you know, when Richard comes into the picture, she's got a pretty intense job, a medical administrator, But in addition to this, she's got elderly parents that she has to take care of. Anybody knows that if you have parents that are getting up in age, they have, you know, everything from doctor's appointments to uh, just needing help around the home. And all of this is on her at this moment in time in her life, Steph.
2: Despite the couple's busy lives, they made time for each other. Everyone who knew them described the couple as, quote, very in love. They were always kissing, hugging, and generally just acting very enamored with one another. On Valentine's Day 2010, Richard had plans to cook dinner for Stacy and her parents. Ever the romantic, Stacy suggested the couple have a little alone time before dinner. Since their home was filled with children and Stacy's parents, the pair decided to meet at the Belton Bridge Park, about an hour outside of Atlanta. The dark, secluded, sprawling park was the perfect location for a romantic Valentine's Day rendezvous. The night of Valentine's Day, Stacy got stuck at work, so she told Richard she'd meet him there at the park. At around 8.15pm, Richard packed up his gift and headed out. Just 30 minutes later, Stacy arrived at the park and found her husband lying dead. The love letter he'd written to her was lying next to him, now soaked in blood. Stacy called 911, take a listen.
0: Oh my god, please I need him right now. He's been shot. He is dead. He was supposed to blood my head. I was I just read my that literally me began to do malware. As soon as I pulled into the park I saw his truck. As soon as I pulled out I could see him laying on the ground. I can't leave it. Okay.
4: I can't leave it like What's so horrific about this is the fact that Richard wasn't just simply shot. He was shot 5 times. And the injuries he sustained were very specific, and it kind of tells a lot, I think, at least about who would this have been that could have done this. First off, we I think that considering the location of these injuries and and I'm referring to the anatomical position of the injuries, these are devastating wounds. Essentially one of them would probably take a person down to the point where they could not self-inflict wounds any further to themselves. But, you know, Richard was shot twice in the abdomen. He was shot uh, twice in the face and shot once in the chest. And so the wound that he sustained in the chest is that thing that finally finished him off, at least in the estimation of the forensic pathologist, because it, it went right through his heart. You know, anytime we have a case involving multiple injuries. It gives us an indication that there is, first off, on the part of the individual that is perpetrating the crime, they wanna make sure the individual is not going to be around any longer. And it also goes to, I think at least, a lack of economy, if you will, in what the individual, the perpetrator is doing. It means it goes to this idea of the individual probably not being as skilled At what they're doing that maybe it's a passion driven thing or maybe it's the first time that they've ever done this so they go to great lengths to try to make sure and guarantee that this individual is in fact deceased
5: and is that an overkill
4: Yeah, it it can be qualified as an overkill. And, you know, most of the time when we think about overkill, we think about things like beatings in particular because they're so very personal. And, of course, sharp force injuries, you know, with stabbings and those sorts of things. But it's not out of the norm uh, relative to overkill events to have someone that shoots an individual multiple times. So let's just keep in mind that if an individual sets out and they choose the weapon uh, that they're going to utilize, uh, in this case a firearm, they're going to empty that firearm until they think that the job is done, and it doesn't matter how it's going to appear.
5: Which is interesting because I would imagine that would only be leaving behind potentially more evidence ultimately.
4: Yeah, you're you're absolutely on the money there, and I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, uh, you know, every time a weapon is fired into a target, let's say you start off at a distance, okay, and maybe you fire, you strike an individual in the abdomen. There might not be any kind of residual powder that's left behind. But as the perpetrator progresses in their shots, let's say powder begins to appear, that kind of gives you a narrative of what the perpetrator was doing during this event, that they're advancing on the individual. And maybe the final shot, you know, the one that they refer to as being center mass in the chest, maybe that's close to a contact wound where they're right on top of the individual. And they pump that last round into the body. And that gives you an impression of an individual, at least that is in a dominant position over the deceased. They just wanna make sure that final shot hits a mark and that the individual is finished.
5: You know, well, initially, not surprisingly, the police thought that this was potentially a robbery and that it was completely random, but that didn't really add up either because there was no evidence of a robbery in the car. In fact, there was $40 in his little cup holder. He still had his watch on. He had cash in his wallet and his wallet was still in his jeans when he was found so that didn't really make any sense. But at the same time, that's all they were really working on.
4: Let me tell you, when you're out on a on a scene like this, uh, from an investigative standpoint, you know how you see in movies and whatnot where they have police that they pat somebody down? Okay, frisk, right? Uh, did you know that in cases like this, we actually frisk bodies? F- first off, you don't want to go sticking your hand blindly into any any person's pockets whether they're alive or deceased but in this case we're gonna feel the outside of the body and automatically you're gonna get an eyebrow raise from me if I suspect that somebody's putting forth a narrative that this might be a robbery and I can feel a wallet I can visualize a ring on a finger or maybe in certain cases a watch or a necklace or anything like and none of that none of that has been taken then it's going to automatically go into kind of this mental checklist that I keep going on in my brain at all times. And I'm going to say, well, it doesn't really meet that standard here. What are we looking at something else? And you combine that with a number of injuries that Richard sustained, and it, it puts you off onto a completely different path.
5: Suddenly the circle around Richard becomes very significant because who would want to do this to him? In fact, even the keys to the car, they were still in the ignition only furthering your point about this
4: definitely not being a robbery. The most valuable thing that an individual might possess in a circumstance like that would, in fact, be that car. So if you've got some opportunistic predator that's out there that's going to perpetrate this kind of crime, you would think, I mean, from Jump Street, they're going to hop in the car, take it off somewhere. Maybe they're going to sell it or strip it down and get parts off of it. That's not the case. The thing of most value that is as far as a material item goes is the vehicle and the fact that it was still there with the keys and the ignition. Yeah, that, that gives us pause.
5: And just to put a pin in that, you would imagine if you were the perpetrator and you had planned this event, you think you would have wanted to cover it up to make it look like a robbery and even just take those key items. But maybe this was something that happened spontaneously.
4: If you're coming into this blindly and all you have remaining is this man's car and his body laying there with all of these gunshot wounds. It leaves more questions than actual answers.
2: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment.
4: a couple of pieces of evidence that were actually recovered out there other than the vehicle is that you've got essentially three separate sets of tracks that are out there. And when I say tracks, I'm not talking about footprints or something like that. I'm talking about tire tracks. For those that don't know, tire tracks are are unique to any particular vehicle. And, you know, we gauge them based upon their width, the depth that they create, that goes to the weight of the vehicle, the wear, the tire wear, all of those sorts of things. And, you know, we can do things like uh, trying to establish what brand of tire left this track or this impression behind. And so this is a concept within forensic practice that's referred to as individualization. And that's kind of one of those signs you can kind of hang your hat on intellectually. And so now you just don't have his his car tracks that are there that are matched up to his vehicle now you've got two other sets of tracks and for every bit of evidence we have Steph, in a case like this the more that you have the more narrow you know the end of that funnel becomes as you begin to process all this information so that in and of itself is a great place to start for investigators you know the thing about tire tracks is this it's not the same as dna or the concept of individualization as it applies to fingerprints, perhaps. But if you have a particular type of tire track that's out there, you know that there are only certain types of vehicles that will have the base width of that type of vehicle. So you kind of begin to narrow things down. I mean, let's think about it, a a compact SUV, when you think about it compared to like a full-size SUV, they're gonna look completely different. They're going to be very distinct And yet you know for every type of tire track that you have out there you have a multiplicity of possibilities as to what type of vehicle you might be looking for but again that's better than having nothing at all
5: i remember hearing about this case when it happened real time and thinking that it was probably a case of road rage or something because it just seemed messy
4: here's where the science comes in if you can say you have three separate cars you have one car in your possession from an evidentiary standpoint you begin to look at the other two sets of tires that are unknown at this point but as you begin to develop leads on potential suspects how do they marry up with the with the vehicles that they operate on a daily basis and at some point in time this is the cool part. When you begin to whittle down that physical evidence, you might have convergence. So you've got suspect A and suspect B, and all of a sudden they're driving cars that might very well marry up to these two sets of unknown tracks you have. That can be a bingo at that point in
2: time. Detectives brought Stacy in for an interview. Here's a portion of the audio.
7: was like, come meet me at the park. You know, it's all secluded. You know, it'll right. be, I mean, we'll exchange our Valentines. And... And when he gave me a kiss he was like and maybe even make out a little you know, I mean that okay. kind of thing. And as I turned in I knew something was wrong. I could see I saw his truck immediately I and mean, because the lights were on and his you know, there's a light when your door is open that lights onto the um, you know, it's on bed, the back of the cab. The car lights for the bed. And I saw that and so I pulled down and I headed right towards his truck, but as soon as I my I could see him. I could see him laying on the ground. He wasn't breathing. He wasn't There was nothing. I went to go take his carotid pulse, but I I was just on the phone and I could just you know you could just tell that he wasn't. Mm. That he was already dead. He was there was no attempts at respirations. There was no that thing, I. They asked me what it was going, you know, I told them that it, I needed help, that my husband was here and, and they, that something bad had happened and that he was dead and he's, you know, I can see the hole on his chin.
4: Well, Stacy, there's no doubt that you
6: love Richard. I do.
7: I, I, I do.
6: I, don't, I, don't, I do.
7: I swear. I don't doubt I that for a second. I would never want anything bad to happen to him for a second.
6: And I don't doubt that either. Okay. And we're going to find out what happened to him. For sure.
5: My heart goes out to her. You know, Stacey finally found the person that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with, and she's clearly devastated. And I can only imagine for her children how difficult this all must have been.
2: While speaking with police, Stacey also had a shocking admission. She'd been having an affair for five years with a man named Juan Reyes. Here's a portion of the interview.
6: When did the affair start? Uh, well,
7: that's why I was saying it's got to come, you know... I mean, it was five years ago, that was before I even met Richard, and right. then so Juan had... went through a divorce, and, and then, and you know, he moved to Florida, and I would just communicate with him via email, we just stayed friends, you know, and then, um, but there was always, some you know, there was always something there between us as far as just communicating, and I didn't see him for three years.
6: Okay, but, but you had a relationship with him before he moved, though? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, when did he come back Florida? I don't Florida?
7: know when he moved back. I saw him for the first time in, um, I guess it was probably April of 09.
6: Okay. So, Richard never knew about your affair then? I
7: mean, I'm sure that he had um, ideas. You know, I'm sure he was suspicious.
6: Mm-hmm. They ever confront you about um, it? or?
7: No. No. I mean, when back in April when Juan came back in, you know, and uh, and I had told Richard, I said, I think I'm gonna hire him to work. He needs the job, he needs to take care of his family. He's always been, I mean, Richard's always known about Juan, known that Juan was a very good friend of mine, you know, and knew that we had a relationship before. And when he started in the office, I mean, Richard did say, he said, are you about to have an affair? And at that point, and I, I said, no, of course not, because at that point I had no intent of that, um, but it did, but it changed.
5: Here's what we know about the relationship between Juan and Stacy. Despite the fact that he had no medical experience, Stacey actually hired him as a surgical assistant, which again is a very important job. His past experience was working as a security officer in a very fancy posh hotel, Police also learned pretty soon thereafter that Juan was a single father and was very hard up for cash. And during their affair, Stacy basically paid for everything. She took care of his truck, his cell phone, took him on vacations. She actually even rented an apartment secretly so that the two of them can meet up and that he had a place to stay sometimes. So this was a very serious relationship however it does appear like a little bit of a classic case of passion potentially and you know we know that juan loved stacy very much and it was speculated that it was his jealousy that maybe drove him to kill richard
4: you know the one comment i have to make about this is that stacy must have really cared for juan because now she's put him in a position where he's working as a surgical assistant and he has no training whatsoever I've known several surgical assistants over the years and their training is relatively intense, as you can imagine. Can you imagine you got somebody in the surgery suite that I don't know, even if they're removing a gallbladder or something, that's critical surgery. And this guy doesn't know what instruments to pass off to the surgeon. That's absolutely terrifying to me. So the fact that she would have such an awareness, remember, she had gone to nursing school that she would have such an awareness of the needs of a say physician in a surgery suite but yet she would give a job like this to somebody that had no background whatsoever so it's disturbing if i were the investigator on this case i'd have to say well hold your horses here you've got an individual that is in a position of authority like stacy was and she's going to put this individual into this kind of position i would want to bring Juan in immediately and begin to talk to him separate from Stacy, And that's the important thing in all of these cases. You want to keep these witnesses separate. And the main reason we do that is so that no one can quote unquote, get their story straight. If you can go out and get an individual cold and bring them in and begin to question them, you're gonna get closer to the truth that way.
5: Well, that's exactly what they did. Ultimately police brought in Juan and he denied everything and agreed to take a polygraph but the results were inconclusive, which I don't hear this very often. Can lie detectors be beaten?
4: There is a reason from a scientific standpoint that polygraphs are not admissible in court. And we hear this tome all the time, you know, well, it's not admissible, it's not admissible. We have to examine why polygraphs are not admissible. And the reason is, is that in science, we have to be able to confirm things numerically quantitatively if you will not qualitatively so you know if i ask you a qualitative question uh, a yes no question perhaps or maybe an opinion question there's no numerical requirement for that you know what i'm saying it's not like you know if you're testing a drug you know like from a forensic standpoint like is this or is this not cocaine and what is the purity level of it you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that when you're trying to judge somebody relative to their truthfulness. I don't know of anybody that can actually do that. There are a lot of people that say they're really good at it, but again, there's so it, it leaves so many open questions, I think, at the end of the day that the courts have never recognized it as being admissible. It's a great investigative tool, though, because you can kind of pick up on the idea of somebody's trying to be deceptive or not and that as an investigative tool it can put you in a particular direction but it's certainly not admissible in court
5: once police brought Juan in they laid it out for him he has an inconclusive polygraph test And they tell him, look, this is looking like you did this. And if you're not the killer, you need to explain what the problems are here. And he denied everything. He basically said he was never in love with Stacy. Yes, they were having a relationship, but frankly, he was trying to still get his ex-wife back and was really using her as a bit of a meal ticket. And he said his alibi was very buttoned up. He spent Valentine's Day with his ex and also his son and they they went to dinner and then they went to Blockbuster to rent a video and nothing eventful happened that day. So when detectives went to his ex-wife and asked her about Juan's alibi, she conceded and said, yeah, that was what they did and that he was with her for the whole
4: night. You know, Steph, I got to say, I I just had a, a vision here, you know, relative to Juan being questioned. And this is what many of us in investigations referred to as a come to Jesus moment when you have a suspect and (laughs) can you imagine you're sitting there and you you tell this guy well listen Juan we we have to be completely forthcoming with you you're our number one suspect in a homicide and a very brutal homicide at that and then all of a sudden he has to make a decision as to what he's going to do. And I I think that this is kind of the ultimate litmus test, even more so than maybe a polygraph test. I think that this kind of goes to the validity of whether he's being truthful or not. For some people, it might be kind of shameful. You know, he's saying that he's using her, all these sorts of things for money. Uh, He's trying to get back with his ex-wife. He's at risk of losing that potential relationship. And so this gives you an opportunity to, to kind of validate what he's saying, that yeah, this guy looks like he's telling the truth, and I think that's very important here.
5: And they also went and interviewed Juan's ex-wife, and she stood by him, and they were surprised by that. That could have been the perfect opportunity for her to throw Juan under the bus because she was not aware that he was having an affair with Stacy, and they were trying to patch up their relationship, but she stood by him and agreed to what they did that night and agreed that he had an alibi. So at this point, without a prime suspect, it does seem as though those tires were their only real piece of information that could get them closer to IDing this person. That was at this point, their only real evidence. So detectives, as they do, they scoured every tire store, hoping to find a match. And luckily they did. The tire from the scene of the crime was a Goodyear Integrity tire. And while this doesn't seem like a great lead because there were thousands of them made in the area, at least there was something to start on.
2: It was around the same time that police received a tip from an IT worker at Stacy's hospital. He had been brought in to clear out employees' junk emails and noticed that when he got to Stacy's inbox, she had not one email the entire Valentine's weekend. He found this incredibly unusual, so he called the police. Luckily, the IT worker had backups of all the deleted emails. With the warrant, police searched through 4,000 of Stacy's emails and found two that stuck out. The first was two weeks before the murder, Stacy had transferred $8,902 to an unknown account. The second email... Stacy transferred an additional $1,100 just two days before the murder to the same account. The money, it turns out, went to a woman named Lenitra Ross. Here's Joseph.
4: When you're an investigator, one of the things that you're looking for is connections. And sometimes the connections seem almost nonsensical, but the more you dig into it and you You begin to understand that there are kind of these parallels that run in people's lives. You see these connections maybe a bit more clearly, if you will. And so when you begin to think about money going to an individual, Lenitra, for instance, those are large amounts of of dough. You know, it's important to note that police went to Lenitra. And it's interesting that not only did Lenitra work for Stacy, but she also rented a home from Stacy as well. You think, well, why in the world would she be so motivated to give this woman that she had worked with previously, and she also rented a house from? Why? Why would you give one of your renters? I think it's the biggest question here. Almost ten thousand dollars. It seems kind of odd to me, and I think that that's that's a red flag for the police. You know, when you begin to to think about it, and then. <laughs> The police are actually questioning Stacy about this. And the idea was that this money was in somehow connected to a, a repair at this rental house that was going to cost 10000 bucks, And, you know, they're asking for receipts and uh, nothing can be, you know, presented, you know, that could validate this. And again, police are stumped by it, but it also gives them pause to think a little bit deeper about this connection.
5: But soon police got another helpful tip this time from stacy's own cousin she told police that stacy owned a chevy impala and the cousin was told to sell that car to raise money for stacy's ailing parents if you remember earlier we learned that she had parents who were sick so the idea was that she would sell this car her cousin would do it for her and then the cash that the cousin received would finally go to the parents and help with their care However, suddenly the car was gone and Stacy told her cousin that she sold it personally. And the cousin just sort of noted it, mostly because she also noticed that none of the care really got to her parents. So that seemed a little bit fishy to her. So she actually called police herself and let them know. And then police, remembering something from their visit to Lenitra's, they remembered that sure enough in Lenitra's driveway, there was a Chevy Impala. So they went to check it. And lo and behold, the tires were the Goodyear integrity tires. So finally, they have a match.
4: Anytime police are conducting an investigation, they're gonna look at every bit of data that is associated with an individual that that might be on their suspect list. And as you begin to kind of narrow down your investigation, you wanna use every asset you have. And in the world that we indwell now, most people carry a cell phone. it's no different from from Stacy. Uh, She would have carried a cell phone and she did. You have to ask a question from an investigative standpoint. Why was this individual that we suspect in this close proximity to this particular tower at this particular time? So not only does it give you the specific number that bounced off of that cell tower, it gives you a timestamp relative to the point in time when they were there.
2: Let's stop here for another quick break.
4: It's important to understand that the tower near the park, and this is the park where where Richard was found, it, it had thousands of pages of records uh, that were associated with that tower. And as the police began to kind of dig into this and they compared the numbers that they were getting off of these tower dumps to the ones in Stacy's phone, they were looking for commonalities. And that, that's what you do as an investigator. And this isn't something that you can kind of, turn around on a dime it takes time but you know because of if you if you put the elbow grease in the time and paying attention to detail is so very important at some point in time you'll find a match and that's that's what the police did and this is an important point the match that they found one of the commonalities that they found was at eight forty p.m on valentine's day a call was actually made from the park to Lenitra Ross's phone, uh, the woman that had been ra- renting Stacy's house, and Stacy had a number in her phone as Reggie, aka Mr. Results.
5: I just need to just make sure that I understand this clearly because the cell phone tower connection is so interesting from a forensic standpoint. So, just so I'm understanding it clearly, there's a cell phone tower which we see everywhere near the park where the body was found and the murder happened, and. As a result, every single call that was made from that tower during a certain amount of time was checked. And as it turns out, a phone call was made in that area from a person who was also in Stacy's contacts. Police Googled his name and number and found out that he was a personal trainer who occasionally held boot camps at Stacy's hospital. So there was some clear connection between Stacy, Lenitra, and this Reggie guy, the personal trainer. So police now start combing through the cell records to find everyone who was involved. And they now know that three minutes after the 840 call from Reggie and Lenitra, Lenitra texted Stacy two things. The first being that she was going to be late for work the next day. The second, happy Valentine's Day.
2: With all of this information, it was enough to get arrest warrants. Under the name Operation Tangled Web, police organized a synchronized arrest of Stacy, Lenitra, and Reggie. When police arrived at Stacy's work to arrest her, she ran, leading detectives on a chase through the hospital, which ended with them cornering her in a locked room. She finally surrendered and was taken into custody. Here's Stephanie.
5: Lenitra and Reggie denied everything, but Stacy quickly spilled the beans. The first question police had was, why would you possibly murder your husband, Richard? Stacy told them that her son told her that Richard molested him, a claim that was never proved or substantiated. And at that time, Stacy was also triggered by her own trauma and felt that she couldn't leave Richard and risked losing custody of her kids. She confided to a friend at work that Lenitra, who told her she knew a guy named Reggie, maybe could kill her husband for her. We also know that Reggie was a personal trainer who supplemented his income by murdering people.
4: As it turned out, we've got Lenitra, Reggie, and and Stacy. Believe it or not, they actually had what the police were referring to as a murder meeting. Wow. Think how ghastly that is. You know, just on its surface, you're going to have a murder meeting. And in most states, you know, I think that, that that would go to this idea of a premeditative event. But interestingly enough, in Georgia, they don't actually have a construct for premeditation there. At this meeting, that's where they determined that Richard's life was essentially worth $10,000 or his death, I guess we could say. And as a result of determining a dollar amount, it was also determined that Lenitra, police uncovered, cover, would get the deed to the rental house that she was living in. And also the Chevy Impala that actually had belonged to Stacy's parents. Again, another kind of ghoulish aspect of this and a week later the team that had the murder meeting the three of these people actually went out again in kind of premeditated fashion they actually Steph they actually went out there and scouted out the location where Richard was going to be murdered just let that sink in just for a second so you're a week in advance you're thinking about all of this according to what they said that Reggie actually loved the idea and told her he would start using it more often for hits. Cause this is an isolated area, you know, seemingly you could get away with this sort of thing. But you know, the one thing that they didn't count on is that the cell phone tower is kind of watching everything. And the idea was to try to make this look like a robbery, but wow, you know, I'd say Reggie kind of botched the job in this case, because as we know, Richard wasn't absent any of his valuables. And the biggest part here is his car was still left at the scene.
5: Wow. It also seems that Stacy might have had other motives. Police also said that Richard had a $500,000 insurance policy and that Stacy stood to gain a lot of money in the event of his death.
4: One of the things I thought that was really important, particularly since you use this term Operation Tangled Web, I think that if you imagine, you know, kind of like, you know, string art that people do, you have this one point of convergence that's happening from an evidentiary standpoint with all three. You're looking to connect all of these things. The police are confused. How can you connect it? Well, the one point of convergence with all of this is this one location that was kind of lorded over, as I stated, by the the cell phone tower, and then you've got the tire evidence, and you've got this money. And these are all points of convergence.
5: And even when this case first came out, I remember hearing about it and learning a little bit about Stacy's background and that she had been married five times. I had two thoughts. One, you think, wow, less than 3% of the United States get married more than three times, according to my research. So that's rare, but that's certainly not a tell that anything ahead is going to be troubled watered, you know, it also means that she was very committed to finding love and perhaps had a bad picker. And although she struck out, she still believed and really wanted to have her happy ending. So finally meeting Richard was a big deal because now her kids finally had a dad and let this be the last of it. I think that's the spirit of this too. You know, love sometimes can cloud judgment and sometimes people can get into things that it real serious very quickly in the spirit of love and I think sometimes kind of looking back and seeing what the tells were and other scenarios is helpful for the rest of us.
2: In December of 2012, Stacy and Reggie pled guilty to the crime and were found guilty of malice murder. Lenitra's case went to trial and she too was found guilty. All three were sentenced to life in prison. With arrests and convictions, the case was seemingly wrapped up. But the police had one lingering question. Why did Lenitra text Stacy, quote, Happy Valentine's Day, the night of the murder? It turns out that they had decided it would be their signal that Richard was dead. Happy Valentine's Day, indeed. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. To view our recent documentary, Murdered and Missing in Montana, you'll find it streaming now on Peacock. Follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Beth Greenwald, Chris Graves, Lisa DiGiovine, Tim Hamilton, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios.